Today's scripture reading is from Titus 2, 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of God. Wing, thank you for reading God's word to us. Um, it really is wonderful to worship the Lord with you and to celebrate the grace that we've been shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, Advent is quickly approaching. Advent, that, that annual season that runs for, for four Sundays leading right up to Christmas. The word Advent means arrival or appearance, appearing. And historically, many churches around the world have celebrated Advent by looking back at Jesus Christ's first coming, his first appearing, and looking ahead to his second coming, when he will appear once again. And in a sense, this passage in Titus 2 that Wing just read for us is telling us to do just that, to look back to Jesus Christ's first appearance and to look ahead to his glorious return. If you happen to have a Bible um, on you or near you, I'm going to encourage you and invite you to open up that Bible to the letter of Paul to Titus so that you can follow along. We're going to project some, some verses up here too, but one way or the other, it would be helpful for you to be able to follow along and make sure that everything I'm saying is really here in God's Word. Verse 11 of this passage says this, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God appeared, and the grace of God appeared when God the Son was born as a child. A child who grew up to die on a cross for the sins of his people, and then to later rise again from the grave on the third day. The grace of God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, if you skip down to verse 13, it says there that we're now waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so Jesus will appear again, and we're waiting for that appearing. And he, when he appears, he's going to appear in glory on a day that no one but God himself knows. So the, the grace of God, that is the love the, the kindness, the favor, undeserved favor of God appeared when Jesus first came in weakness and humility to die. And, and the, but the glory of God, his majesty, his power, that will appear when Jesus comes back to judge and to reign and to make all things new. Everyone will see him across the planet and there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that he is 
our great God and Savior. This passage in Titus 2, 11 to 15, is all about the grace of God. And to be more specific, its focus is on what God's grace does. What God's grace does. And so that's the question we want to ask today. What does God's grace do? What does it accomplish? And according to this passage, we're going to see that it does at least two things. It saves and it trains. God's grace saves us and God's grace trains us or teaches us. So the first thing we want to see is that God's grace saves. This is a glorious truth. This is what we were singing about. Most of the songs that we sang were focused on this very truth. Captured there in verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace rescues all kinds of people from every background, every ethnicity, every walk of life. But what does it rescue all people from? How would you answer that question if I were to ask you, what does God's grace save us from? If you've read the Bible and if you've been around church for any length of time, you might answer by saying, God's grace saves us from the penalty of sin. And you'd be right. Because everyone who receives the gift of God's grace by believing in Jesus Christ is rescued from the eternal consequences of sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, which means that the, the penalty, the consequence for every evil thing said and thought and done and for every good thing left undone is death. It's eternal separation from God. God's grace saved you from that. If you've believed in Jesus. If if God's grace had not saved you from that, then Christ's future return would not be something to celebrate. It would be something to fear. Because Christ's return for you would mean judgment and wrath. That's what it would mean for all of us if God's grace had not rescued us from the penalty of sin. Look at what Paul says in the very next chapter, in chapter 3 of Titus. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's grace again. You recognize that, right? The loving kindness and the goodness of our God, that's grace. Verse 5, he saved us. And then we skip to verse 7. It says, So that he saved us, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, so, so by grace, God justifies us. That means he rescues us from our own guilt, takes away that guilt, saves us from our own guilt, and he makes us his children, his children who receive an inheritance, and that inheritance is eternal life. So yes, it's 100% true. God's grace saves us from the penalty of sin. It's right there in Titus chapter 3. But I want you to notice something. That's not what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. When when Paul says that the grace of God saved us in chapter 2, he doesn't talk about salvation from the penalty of sin. 
Look, look back at verse, chapter 2, verse 14, one more time. It's talking there about Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. That means he died for us, right? To redeem us. That means to rescue, to save us from what? From all lawlessness. The grace of God saves us, according to Titus 2, 14, from all lawlessness. Here it says that he saves us, God's grace does, from a life spent flaunting and ignoring God's laws and God's ways. That's the way we would live. That's the life we would be leading. But the grace of God saved us from that. Saved us from a life spent, wasted, ignoring God's laws. Ignoring God's ways. You see, not only does God's grace save us from the penalty of sin, that's in chapter 3, but according to chapter 2 here, God's grace saves us from the power of sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Not just the consequences of sin, but grace saves us from the controlling influence of sin. Look at the rest of chapter, uh, verse 14 there, the, the second half. It says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, second half of 14, and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Hmm. God's grace saves us from living self-absorbed, self-ruled lives. You see, he saved us to be his people and to live lives centered on him, ruled by him, to be his people, no longer committed to living our own way, according to our own desires, our own goals. No, God's grace saved us from that to be his people passionate about doing what he says is good, what he calls good. So you see, the grace of God didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. It saved us from the overwhelming control and power of sin. This is what God promised he would always do. He promised that by grace he was going to rescue his people from the power and penalty of sin. As far back as Jeremiah 31, God promised it. He told his people, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And then at the end of that section, he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He would rescue his people from sin's penalty and sin's power. Ezekiel 37 gives us a a very similar message. Another prophet utters a very similar prophecy. He says, here's what God has in store for his people. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, God promised to free us from the penalty and the power of sin. He promised it. And when Jesus appeared, God delivered on that promise. 
if you have experienced God's saving grace, you don't need to sin anymore. What do you think of that? Do you believe that? I'm, I'm trying to be careful in the way that I state that. I'm not saying you won't sin anymore. I'm not saying you don't sin anymore. I'm saying that if you have experienced God's saving grace, you don't need to sin anymore. And I wonder if you believe that. Certainly you're still tempted to sin, and you still do sin, and you will sin again, and so will I. No doubt. Sin still has influence. It still has an attraction. It still has a measure of power in your life. But it does not have the power it once had over you. If you've believed in Jesus and experienced the saving grace of God, God's grace saved you from sin's control. Do you believe that? Do you live in the light of that? God's grace saves you from sin's power and gives you his power. And and, and if you're anything like me, you might find it hard to believe that at times. Because we often live as if sin still has the same authority over us. As if sin still has the same power to tell us what to do and we must obey. Like someone perhaps who's been abused and hurt and controlled by someone. And they, they, they finally get freedom from that person. That person, perhaps it was a, you could think it was a, maybe a slave master or some other kind of oppressive, controlling figure. That person who was at one point enslaved or oppressed or controlled finally gets freedom from that abusive, oppressive person. They're free now. That person can't hurt them anymore. And yet when they see that person from time to time, they still get scared. And when that person makes demands on them, they still feel this innate inclination to to obey. You see, because they're not, it's, it's as if they forget that that person no longer has authority over them. That person can't hurt you anymore. That person doesn't have the power in your life that they once had. But you forget that because those old habits die hard. And you've been so conditioned to believe that they, when they say, jump, you say, how high? So when sin comes, temptation comes, you feel this innate sense that, oh, here, I'm just going to fall. I'm going I'm to sin again. I'm going to give in again. That's who I am. That's the way it always goes. And you've forgotten that sin no longer has that power. You've been saved from that power, from that authority. That's, we forget that, and that's why we need reminding that God's grace has freed us from the power that sin once had over us. And not only does, does God remind us of that and tell us in places like this, God's grace doesn't just free us from the power of sin. God's grace right now is slowly but steadily training us to live in the reality of that newfound freedom. You see, we are told that grace has freed us, saved us from the power of sin, We need more than that. We need grace to be operating in us, to teach us, to train us to live in the reality of that newfound freedom. So that's the second thing we're going to look at today. God's grace saves, but God's grace also trains. Your Bible, your translation might say it teaches. Look at verse 12. 
Once again, but we'll start at 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at verse 12. Training us, or teaching us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Hmm. God's grace teaches us to say no to what God calls evil and unwise. God's grace teaches us to say no when the old master comes and says, do this or do that. God's grace teaches us to say no to what God calls evil and unwise, even when the whole world seems to disagree. And God's grace teaches us to say yes. Yes to a way of life that's self-controlled, that's upright and godly, Titus 2 says. Yes, God's grace has freed us from the power of sin, but those old habits die hard. And so God's grace has to keep training us to say no to sin and to say yes, to say yes, even when it's hard, to say yes to following Jesus, to say yes to what looks like Jesus, to what honors Jesus. And so the question that arises for us is this, are are you a willing student of God's grace? Are you a willing student? diligent student of God's grace because God's grace is here to train you and teach you how are you responding to what God's grace is teaching you it's training us to live Jesus-y lives to have Jesus-y Jesus-like character and Jesus-y convictions and Jesus-y conduct in our lives right now and one of the ways I believe one of the ways that God's grace is teaching us is by reminding us that we no longer belong to ourselves. Remember, remember, we read it earlier. He gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. He made us a people for his own possession. We're his. And so now he continues to train us to live that way. Train us to live like we're his. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. And we need to keep learning that. We need to keep learning that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. So God's grace, his saving grace, is also a training grace. Not only does God's grace train us to reject sin and pursue godliness, but God's grace trains us to wait Here's another thing that God's grace trains us to do. trains us to wait. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says there that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace teaches us to patiently, eagerly wait for the future return of Jesus, our King. And by the way, the kind of waiting that God's grace trains us to do is not a passive waiting. We might think that, that waiting, it sounds passive, right? What, what do you do when you're 
waiting for the train or waiting in a doctor's office. You, you probably do nothing. Maybe you scroll through your news feed or play a game on your phone or read a magazine. You kill time. You kill time because you feel like the only reason I'm here is to wait. I'm not here to do anything else but wait. When the train arrives, then I'll do something. I'll get up and get on. When the doctor arrives, that's when the action begins. But right now, there's nothing to do. We might think that waiting for Jesus' future appearing implies killing time. As, as if this present age that we're living in between the appearings of Christ doesn't matter. But it does matter. It does matter. For one thing, it's, it's in the waiting that we learn to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's, it's in the waiting and through the waiting that we are trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I, um, I grew up in a Brazilian household, and on special occasions, like birthdays, for instance, we would sometimes go to a certain Brazilian restaurant where we liked, and, and, and there we would enjoy one of, one of the great contributions of, that Brazil has made to, to the world. You're welcome. It's, it's called rodízio. Rodízio. Some of you know what rodízio means. It's, it's where you, you pay one price and you get all you can eat, endless assortments of grilled meats served on these, these swords, these skewers that they come around and, and offer you from. And, and, and one thing, one thing rodízio taught me as a young boy was the art of waiting. Because you see, early on in the evening, when you get to one of these places, the waiters, they, 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 what they would do is bring out the, the cheaper, lower quality meats. And what would happen is that the inexperienced customers, they would fill up on that food. And they did also go to the buffet and, 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 and load their plate up with rice and other starchy foods. They'd enjoy it to a degree. But sadly, later, when the waiters made their rounds with the, the juicier, the more delectable, higher-end meats, these poor rookies were, were stuffed. They couldn't eat anymore. No more room. And so you see what happened. They had, they had wasted their appetites when they should have been waiting. They wasted their appetites when they should have been waiting. And I made that mistake, too. But I learned. Eventually, I learned the ways of waiting. And it was in the waiting that I learned a little bit of self-control. I learned to say no. No, thank you. When the waiter offered me some, some grilled turkey or chicken or sausage. No, no, I mean, turkey, chicken, and sausage, those things are fine. Those are great. But I didn't go there to eat that. I didn't go to a steakhouse to eat turkey. I went there to eat steak. And so I learned to say no thank you. And if some of you are, are vegetarians, I'm sorry if I'm grossing you out with, with this illustration, but try, try to empathize. For, for carnivores like, like me, this is, this is great. I knew what I was there for, and so I, and so I waited. And I, and I knew that in order to enjoy the better food and in order to maximize value, because given the, the high price of the meal, I had, to, I had to pass again and again, pass 
No, thank you. No, thank you. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. You see, waiting taught me to say no to what was, what was less valuable so that I could say yes to what was better. Sometimes I did a better job of this than other times. Sometimes I was so hungry I couldn't say no. And I regretted it. Waiting teaches us to say no to what is less valuable so that we can say yes to what is better. And so it is with God's grace. It teaches us to wait for the appearing of our Lord, the appearance of our God and Savior, our King. And in the waiting, we learn to say no to whatever does not align with the will of the King that we're waiting for. And we learn slowly but surely to to say no to everything that has no place in his kingdom, that kingdom that we're waiting for. We learn to say no to what spoils our appetite for him and his kingdom. Don't something spoil your appetite for Christ and his kingdom? Make it seem less appetizing, less attractive, less deserving of your patient waiting. But it's as we wait, we learn to say no to what is of less value, but we also learn to say yes to what is better. As we wait, what, what we, what, see, what we do now in this life that we're living right now between the two appearings of Christ is not meaningless. Jesus has told us that, that he hasn't told us to just sit tight until he shows up. The one we're waiting for saved us to be a people who are, quote, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. That means serious about passionate about doing what is good. Right now, in this present age, remember, remember we saw it in verse 12? We're being trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now while we wait. Again, imagine a, a waiting room in a, in a pediatrician's office, and, and there's a mom in that, in that waiting room with her four-year-old son. She's not expecting to get a whole lot done while she's in that waiting room. She's just expecting to be able to have a little peace and quiet. She just wants that son to be good. Don't break anything. Don't make a scene. Sit tight until the nurse comes in and calls your name. But when Paul talks about how God's grace is teaching us to live in this present age, he tells us to do a lot more than just sit tight and be good. Behave yourself. He wants us to do more than just behave ourselves. According to the Bible, if you believe in the second coming of Jesus, you will devote yourself to good works. We will devote ourselves to good works, and that includes extending generosity, compassion, service to others. We will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And by the way, that word upright in there, Upright doesn't just mean nice, respectable. The word upright there means just, truly righteous. You see, the word upright, it's not just about inward, private morality, like don't lie, don't cheat. That's part of it. That's only a piece of it. Upright is not just about, and I've used this language before, it's not just about keeping your hands clean from sin. 
It involves keeping your hands clean from sin, but it involves more than that. It's about getting your hands dirty to care for and protect others. That's what uprightness looks like. I'll give you an example from the scriptures. The Bible calls Job an upright and righteous man. Job was an upright and righteous man. Why? No doubt he was privately moral. I I trust that he was an honest man. I trust that he was not a cheater. But he's also called upright because, Job 29, 12, quote, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. This is Job talking. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. Verse 15, I I, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Verse 16, I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. You see, Job sought out the good of others. Even people he didn't know personally. He went to bat for others. He sought to serve others. And this is a picture for us of what uprightness looks like. There's a, a great Old Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Watke, and I want to I read a quote from him. He, he, he wrote this. He says, in the Bible, the just or the, or the upright are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The unjust, on the other hand, are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Most people, he goes on, think of being unrighteous as lying or committing adultery And I would say, yes, that's true. That is unrighteousness, lying, committing adultery. But, Waki goes on, unrighteousness goes beyond that. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good when it's in your power to act. Therefore, it is unrighteous not to feed the poor when you have the power to do so. It is unrighteous to take so much income out of your own business that your employees are paid poorly. It is unrighteous to be too busy with your own concerns to not look in on your elderly neighbors. See how practical, how practical Waki gets. He says, he says righteousness is lived out in disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. And he gives these specific examples of unrighteousness in, in contrast to what uprightness looks like. And, and, and here's where, where I want us to get. Here's the reasoning. Here's what that has to do with waiting for the future appearing of Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. Here's what this has to do. When Jesus appears again, it will be the end of death, the end of disease, the end of suffering. It will be the end of hunger. It will be the end of sin, both yours and other people's. So if you're suffering now, you want coming of Christ's kingdom. You want an end to suffering. You want an end to sin. And if you're, if you're compassionate towards it, maybe you're not suffering personally right now, but if you're compassionate towards others who are suffering, then you want the arriving of Christ in his kingdom too and all that it'll bring. But if we are eagerly waiting for his appearing, aren't we going to be passionate now for what will come with his appearing? In other words, if we're passionate and zealous for his appearing, eager for it, won't we be zealous to, for instance, make Jesus known now? Won't we be zealous to pursue justice and healing now? Because that's what's coming when he comes back. 
There's going to be a lot of healing and a lot of justice. Won't we want to pursue that now? If we're really waiting for him to come? Won't we want to push back against sin and its effects in our own lives and in the lives of others? Yeah, if we're eager, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, then we will be eager to call people to believe in him, and we'll be eager to love and serve people whether they believe in him or not. That's what God's grace is teaching us to do in the waiting. In the waiting. It's not passive. It's an active. It's a patient yet active waiting. So as we, as we close, Jesus gave himself for us to save us and train us. Train us to say no to sin and yes to what's good. And to wait eagerly and actively for his return. So I want to end with two questions to ask ourselves. Two questions that I hope, these are questions that I've been asking myself. I had the opportunity to preach this morning at First Baptist Church just down the road, and I had the opportunity to ask these questions of those brothers and sisters, and I want us to ask these questions of ourselves as well. And, and hopefully they will help us discern how it is that we're responding to God's grace. How are we receiving what God's grace is aiming to teach us? First question, what am I zealous for? What am I zealous for? Ask yourself. In other words, what am I passionate about? What am I excited about? Some of us are zealous to earn more money and save more money, and that's very understandable. Some of us are zealous to advance our careers, maybe to find a new career. Maybe some of us are zealous to, to prove ourselves, to make a name for ourselves. What do you, are you zealous about politics? Does that get you excited? Are you zealous, excited, passionate about sports? Or your kids' sports? What would someone who is close to you say that you're passionate about? Maybe this is a question that we not only ask ourselves, maybe it's a question we ask people that are close to us. If you're married or if you live in a family, ask someone next to you who's close to you. What, what, do, you, what do you think I'm passionate about? What do you see me really care deeply about and get excited about? What do you see me as being committed to deeply? Some of you might say, I'm not passionate about anything. I used to be passionate. I've lost the passion. I'm, I'm just exhausted. I'm just trying to get by. God's grace intends to train us to be passionate, to be zealous for what he's passionate about, you see. So we need to ask, am I passionate and excited about what God is passionate and excited about? What am I excited about and committed to doing? And, and, and how does that line up against what God is zealous about? And how, how is my zeal, the things that I'm really excited about and committed to, how are those things shaping my life? and the life of my household, for that matter. Here's the last question. What am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? We're, we're all waiting for something, all right? I don't just mean waiting for this message to end. We're all waiting for something. We all operate to some degree on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. We operate uh, and press on 
and get out of bed because we're expecting something. We're hoping for something. We're waiting for something. It could be something as simple as you're, you're waiting for the weekend so that you can finally breathe and rest. Or maybe you're waiting for, uh, for a promotion that you're really excited about. You're waiting for it to happen because when that promotion comes, you know things are going to get better for you. Maybe you're a little further down the line. You're, you're waiting for retirement. Oh, things will be good then. I can keep pressing on. I can keep pushing because I know the retirement's around the corner. <laughs> Maybe some of you are much earlier in the game. You're, you're waiting for graduation. You're waiting for college. The excitement that that will bring. Or, or maybe, maybe you're, you're waiting for marriage. Or you're waiting for kids. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for in such a way that, that the waiting, it, it's waiting for that thing that is motivating you, that's driving you. Because you're so eager for it to come. God's grace teaches us to wait eagerly for the future appearing of Christ. And so the question is, are we eagerly waiting for that? Is that even on our radar? Are you eagerly waiting his glorious appearing? His glorious kingdom and all that it'll contain? Are you eagerly waiting for, for the inheritance that will come when he arrives? Are you eagerly waiting for the restoration of all things? If so, that's going to shape what you pursue and what you get passionate about now, won't it? That, that waiting, what you're waiting for, if you're waiting for his arrival, that's going to shape what you're zealous for now, won't it? In fact, in fact, isn't it possible that, that sometimes we struggle so much to live Jesus-y lives <laughs> In the present age, because we hardly even think about his future appearing. Is that possible? That, that part of the reason that we struggle so much to devote ourselves to good works, it's, by, it's part of why we, we struggle to really value what Jesus values and pursue what he calls good and live like him, live Jesus-y lives. Part of the problem is it's because we, we hardly think about his future appearing. We might think about the past appearing, the forgiveness of sin, yes, but future appearing? I don't think about that so much, and much less do we eagerly await it. So again, the question, what am I waiting for? God wants to teach us to wait for his appearing. If you have experienced God's saving grace, you are also experiencing his training grace. So will you humbly say, Lord, I submit all my interests, all my passions, all my desires to you. Teach me. Can we pray together? Teach me, Lord, to care about what you care about. To pursue what you call valuable and important. To, to cultivate an appetite for what you say is better. Because, because if we're honest, Lord, I, I tend to treasure the wrong things. I prioritize the wrong pursuits half the time. 
But you've said, Lord, here's, our, here's my hope. You've said, Lord, that your grace teaches. And I know you're patient, Lord, and I know you're, you're persistent with me. You, will, will you continue to teach me? Teach me to be committed to what you call good. To be committed to worshiping you, serving you, and loving others in your name. Even, even as I wait for the appearing of my God and Savior and his kingdom. Let, let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for freeing us from sin's penalty and power. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to live between the appearings of your Son, our King. And, and, and Lord, make us willing, humble, diligent students of your grace. Make us trainable, coachable, teachable, Lord. Make us receptive to what your grace is teaching us. We ask it in Christ's name.